This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, our world continues to change in so many areas, but particularly in regards to technology. Specifically, smart tech is not just changing how we use technology, but it's actually changing the way people make decisions. Or so argues Beth Cantor and Allison Fine. In their upcoming book entitled The Smart Nonprofit, they point out that smart tech and other advanced digital technologies are actually now making decisions for people instead of just being used by people. And that's why they claim that this is not just a tech evolution, but a revolutionary shift in moving power away from people and towards tech. I think you'll find today's show fascinating. Well, Allison and Beth, it's great to have you on the show. Beth, it's great to have you back on the show. Now, you have a new book coming out this spring entitled The Smart Nonprofit. I wanted to talk about a few key insights you share in your book. In fact, one of the first is the idea of smart tech. It's now changing the way people make decisions. In fact, you point out that smart tech and other advanced digital technologies are actually making decisions for people instead of just being used by people. You argue that this is not just a tech evolution, but a revolutionary shift in power away from people and towards tech. Talk more about that. What do you mean by smart tech and why is this so revolutionary? So we use the term smart tech. It's kind of an umbrella term that describe kind of a family of technologies that may include artificial intelligence, machine learning, chatbots, natural language processing, smart forms, even robots and drones. And the thing to keep in mind is that these tools are, are they're different than, say, digitizing a process. So if we think about like digitizing how you know, how we were paying employees, you know, before digitization, they might, they might be set, given a paper check, have to sign it, go to the bank to deposit it. But now it can be automatically deposited, you know, into their account. That's automation, but that's not necessarily what we're talking about. We're talking about a smart automation where the technology is actually taking over the decision-making. And when I think about this, I think about cars, okay? Smart cars versus a regular car. I had a rental car because I had a little issue with my car and it had this camera that was smart. And as I was backing up out of my driveway, it slammed on the brakes for me automatically because it sensed that there was a trash can right behind me that I was going to hit. So in a sense, the car was Make a decision to stop. And it wouldn't let me go until I, you know, got out and moved the trash can, or else I told it that it was okay. And was so there actually was, an you know, object behind it, or was it just you know what it was? Be- it was it was raining and there was a raindrop on the camera. Oh <laughs> my really goodness. Annoying, wow. You know, but but that's what we're talking about, you know, not just smart cars, but the, the kinds of tools that help nonprofits do their work, whether it's programs, fundraising, or the back office. 
that's a really interesting example. And I appreciate you sharing that because that's an everyday, I think that will happen more often as cars improve their technology. Well, Allison, one of your goals for this book is to help nonprofit leaders understand when and how to use the technology ethically and responsibly in order to become smart nonprofit, as you call it. Could you give us a couple of examples of how we can use technology in an ethically responsible way, in your opinion? Sure. So as Beth was saying, automating processes, Rob, using smart tech means that the technology is now making decisions that only people could make before, right? And this can be predictions of, you know, there's an effort in uh, London, Ontario, in Canada that's using smart tech to predict which of the chronically homeless people in their community are going to slide back into homelessness, right? So they have all of this data about these individuals who have, you know, agreed to this data collection. And they're using it to enable the smart tech to look for the flags that show, gee, this person is really starting to have some trouble when they didn't meet their check-in or, you know, that they, they um, had to go to the hospital or whatever the, the flags are that are in, in the system. Other uh, municipalities and nonprofits are starting to use smart tech to screen people for services like food services or housing services. Now, this is fantastic because we know that nonprofits are overwhelmed by demand for services and they always will be. It's the nature of the work. However, if you're using smart tech to screen people in to systems, it means some people are being screened out of systems. Now, smart tech takes enormous stores of data to work. We call it Library of Congress-sized data sets in order to practice seeing the patterns in the data. In the areas of social services, the only data sets of those sizes are the historic data sets that are racist in nature, right? We know black and brown people have been screened out of mortgages for however long mortgages have been given. Now, if a programmer maybe doesn't know that history, feeds it into the smart tech, and now a nonprofit is using it without asking good hard questions about what are the assumptions that went into this code, where did the training data come from, they could fall into this terrible trap of using racist smart tech that will make the odds even higher for black and brown people to get into the systems. That is so interesting how it's embedded in some of our new smart tech even. We actually call it embedded bias is what it is. And, and, One of the huge challenges, Rob, of smart tech is you can't see it at work the way you can social media. Right. Fascinating. Beth, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I was just thinking about, I mean, Allison just gave a brilliant example about, you know, the potential for the technology, you know, to be racist (laughs) unless we work actively not to be. But one of the central principles in the book is about being human-centered. And that starts with how leaders start to imagine, and I say leaders start to imagine you know, where are they going to use this to to reap the benefits? And I think about like the Trevor Project, you may be familiar with this organization. Um, They provide crisis counseling to LGBTQ people. So they might, you know, so so someone might initially say, oh, let's just, you know, get a chatbot and have the chatbots replace the counselors. 
that's not being human-centered because it can be potentially devastating to one of the clients who are calling. And we all know, have heard stories of chatbots going awry. <laughs> one of my favorite is from Microsoft a couple of years ago. And it used this technology, natural language processing, which actually learns how to respond by interacting with people. So they put this chatbot named Tay on Twitter. And the intent was, uh, we're going to put this out in the wild and it's going to interact with young people and it's going to give us lots of information about how we can converse with young people. But of course, once it was on Twitter, the trolls got a, you know, <laughs> a hold of it and they started teaching it how to be a racist, sexist, harmful, you know, disgusting kind of chatbot. And uh, Microsoft had to take it down within a few hours. So I, so I didn't know the, it was just only a couple of hours. It yeah, only lasted it, a couple of hours. That is so sad. The Trevor Project did not make that mistake because they thought through, okay, what, what potential harm could a chatbot if <laughs> it was replacing the counselor's harm? You know, so they are using a chatbot, but they're using it to help train the counselors. And it's based on real life simulations. And this is really helpful because the counselors can only be trained by staff and there's only a limited number of staff. And by using the technology, they're helping to get training to scale so they can get more counselors out there on the front line. And they're also being very responsible in the way that they're deploying this technology, which can learn from interactions, but they don't put it out there for anybody just to react to it. It's only been exposed to the counseling process, the right language, the right way to deal with a, a youth that might be in crisis. That's a, such an interesting example. And I'm glad that, like say, the Trevor Project has learned from that. Well, good. Well, Beth, when I've had you on my show before, a couple of years back, we talked about automation then and this is something that's rapidly growing in our culture, right? And in short, automation is, as it's applied to nonprofits would relieve some of the staff of rote tasks, right? Like reconciling expense reports, perhaps, or adding value to by identifying prospective donors, maybe. And Alice, you already kind of mentioned how we're all stretched. We're all a bit stressed in the nonprofit sector because of just the sheer need that's out there in the community, particularly humanitarian-driven uh, nonprofits. It will also become the key organizational gatekeeper and decide who gets services when and how, right? And who gets left out, as you mentioned earlier. Well, some of my listeners may hear this and wonder, so are nonprofits really going to replace people with automation for these tasks? You already mentioned, Beth, that the Trevor Project, great example, they decided not to do it and they decided to be more human-centric. So how prevalent is this now and how quickly is this trend growing? And then what can nonprofits do? Like the Trevor Project, sounds like they did the right thing by doing the research, but any other insights of how prevalent it is and, and what are other nonprofits doing? So, I mean, this is the message in our book, <laughs> to be human-centered. And human-centered isn't where the robots take over our jobs. And I think the best thinking in the field now is really about co-botting, where the machines do what they do best and the humans <laughs> do what they do best, and they're working together. You know, we released a report called AI Forgiving that was funded by the Gates Foundation, where we looked at all of the automation and artificial intelligence tools that were being used in fundraising and, and giving. And one of them was, you know, where it would automate the major gift prospect research. And it would sit, you know, take 20 hours of desk research and be able to do that in, you know, a half hour or whatever. And, and we actually heard people telling us, oh, and some executive directors are thinking of reducing their fundraising staff. And we said, no, that is not a good idea because 
that then they miss the key benefit of using this technology, which is that gift or the dividend of time, which could be repurposed into other activities like building relationships with donors or maybe reimagining how you're recruiting staff or just giving that time to be to think or to rest if it's needed and to come back with more innovative thinking. So what we are advocating for in the book is that it's not all about efficiency. And um, it's not about cutting, cut, you know, cutting. It's really a more expansive. It's about gaining that benefit of efficiency and repurposing it into more impact and doing things better. And I'm sure Allison has some thoughts on this too. <laughs> yeah. What else would you add to that, Allison? Yeah. So I want to say, Rob, that Beth and I consider an opportunity right now, a once in a generational opportunity to remake work in nonprofits, right? We have just gone through a 30-year process focused on efficiency, right? And efficiency turns into frantic busyness, which turns into nobody from the outside can bother us because we're too busy, right? How often have you heard, and we hear this every day, volunteers bemoaning the fact that they aren't doing anything meaningful with an organization? Or staff saying the majority of their day is spent on administration and, you know, uh, being risk averse because everyone is so terrified of something going wrong, right? And everyone is so frantically busy. The reason why we're so excited about smart tech is that it can relieve staff, organizations of a lot of that busy work, but also turn the page on that chapter of frantic busyness and get to doing what nonprofits ought to be spending the majority of their time doing, which is deep, real relationship building, right? We want to move from being transactional to being relational. And this technology makes that possible. But Rob, it's only possible with leadership that understands this well, right? Smart tech, implementing smart tech in really thoughtful, ethical, responsible ways is not a technical challenge. It's a leadership challenge. And that's why we wrote this book, right? That's why we wrote the Smart Nonprofit is to encourage the leadership of organizations, C-suite, boards, donors, to really wrap their arms around this idea of being able to fundamentally change what it is that we focus on as organizations. I really appreciate both of what you said. A couple of things. The co-botting, love that term, Beth. I thought that was excellent. And then moving from being transactional to being relational. Allison, you really brought up a great point. This is a leadership challenge. It's not a technology challenge. I really like that emphasis. And obviously it fits well with this podcast, but I think you're absolutely right, 100%. And in fact, one of the things you already mentioned was this embedded bias that often we have to deal with when it comes to smart tech. You mentioned it already, but maybe we can go a little bit more into that. How have you found or how have nonprofits profits you've worked with found the best way to mitigate these problems? What do they have to do in order to really make sure that they're fully aware of where this might be embedded in their technology? I'm going to tee this up and then let Beth talk about something she describes brilliantly, which is our Ready, Set, Go chapter. But this is about really making the time and the space, Rob, to have a thoughtful, human-centered process for thinking about using smart tech and really important and really strategic ways. You don't want this broad brush of painting the whole house with smart tech. You want to get right to the most important places for using it. And I'll let Beth talk about the kinds of processes we hope people will use to decide how to use smart tech. 
Yeah, well, the, the thing that we don't want leaders to do is to punt it down the hall to the IT department and say it's for the tech piece. You know, I I don't code. I, I don't know. I don't know nothing about any of this. You know, but <laughs> absolutely, leaders don't know have to get. Leaders do not need to be technical or have to code, but they have to understand a couple of key things. And in the book, we have a framework called Ready, Set, Go. So the ready piece of it is to understand the end user's need. So whether that's staff or clients, what's what's the problem that we hope to solve for people? Just like the, the Trevor Project did with how they were thinking about deploying it. There's also something that they need to do at this point, and it sounds really scary, but it isn't. <laughs> it's called okay threat assessment, and and it, I know it's a scary term, and we and. Allison and I argued over, should we use the term or should we not use the term? Because we don't want to scare people away. But it's really having a brainstorm and thinking through what, what could go wrong, trying to mitigate for that. An example of that, Best Friends Animal Society at one point was piloting a chatbot to help with Black Hat Adoption Day. Now, if you can imagine a chatbot that is interacting with people <laughs> and picks up on their vocabulary and then looks for other words that mean the same thing, you can imagine all the ways that black hats could go wrong, right? With the self-learning <laughs> so <true>. uh, technology. <laughs> and Loaded with tried potential. To mitigate it. They tried to mitigate it and they just felt that it was, took so much time and there was too much potential for something to go wrong that they, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, this is not the best use of this tech. And sometimes you don't know until you actually have a little pilot like that. The set part is identifying the, the, it's not just grabbing a tool off the shelf, you know, oh, this hammer, or I'm going to grab the hammer that this other nonprofit in our community used. No, you need to find the right tech tool from a company who is in line with your values. And then you need to do a little bit of due diligence about that. My favorite thing to do is to Google the uh, software name and the word lawsuit. <laughs> um, that's a good way to do that. Or to talk to other people who may have used it, but aren't being mentioned by that particular company. And then uh, the last step, which is the go, you don't immediately go to scale. It's kind of inching to scale. And that's through a lot of testing, iterating, and improving. So that's the ready, set, go process. We'll be right back. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. If you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Yeah. 
I really like that. That's a good way to think about it. And, uh, you know, a question then back would be to either one of you, you can answer this one with these technology changes. Is this something that essentially nonprofit leaders need to already just embrace? Or are you seeing a lot of nonprofit leaders kind of push back and kind of resist these changes and therefore by not proactively moving forward with these changes that you're recommending, they're not only getting behind technology wise, but they're getting behind leadership wise. What have you seen with some of those who are really resistant to some of these new technologies that maybe they're just not as familiar with or as comfortable with? Well, Rob, we've been doing tech for good work for a long time. So this isn't the first time that we've seen C-suite level uh, executives lean back instead of lean in when we start to talk about tech. The difference now, as we've been talking about on your entire podcast, is the impact of sending this decision down to the IT team at the end of the hall and not really thinking through what happens to your organizational values, what happens to your clients when tech is making decisions for you. And that's really, you know, at the heart of so much of this. We can't emphasize enough how important it is to have leadership recognize that this is their responsibility, that understanding, at least understanding what questions to ask of, of say, a commercial uh, software company or what questions to ask your tech people to ask is critically important. And saying, I'm not a techie, it's not for me, is just not acceptable. You know, Rob, I think also this sense the pandemic was a disruptive technology because it was a structural change. All of a sudden we were remote and there was this compelling reason because we had to stay safe. I can't tell you <laughs> in the past, you know, and I do, I used to do a lot of travel, haven't been out of my house since <laughs> almost two years now, but I used to get on a plane and fly halfway around the world. And, and so with some clients, said, well, let's do a remote meeting. I could do a remote training. And there was like kind of resistance to that. And now because we had to make that shift, had to make that pivot because lives mattered. We did it. We didn't, you know, not maybe cleanly or greatly, or but we did it and we're learning. So I think now that there's a little bit more openness to looking at technology solutions because of the pandemic and realizing the benefits uh, that, are, you know, in terms of innovation. And that's why we really need this kind of thoughtful process that Allison just, you know, just uh, described. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. And there's no doubt about it. Like COVID definitely forced us to do certain things that we wouldn't have otherwise. I remember I've had another guest on my show that talked about, for example, fundraising, how the fact that, like you said, you don't travel as much. It's now turned to the point where what they found in their research, and they, they are a company that uh, reaches multiple states throughout the country, that, for example, when you ask for money, a lot of donors now don't want you to waste time to get on a plane or even take them to a, a dinner or to a nice restaurant. Just have a Zoom call and you can ask for a million dollars even now on a Zoom call. That's what they found, that people are comfortable with that now only because of COVID. And now everyone's on Zoom, right? And we're just kind of used to using that technology on a regular basis. So let me go back a little bit to what you have to say in terms of you know, Allison, you said it very clearly, like you, it's not acceptable to move forward. So maybe go a little bit deeper. What are the consequences to nonprofit leaders and organizations that just refuse to really move with the times and not again, not just with their technology, but with their leadership style as well? Uh, so let me hold on to that thought for just a half second. Let me back up just a, just a little bit, Rob, because something we need to mention is uh, why now, right? Why are we talking about smart tech right now? And that is because we're at this inflection point where the cost of the technology has come down so far uh, and the power of the technology has increased so much that everyday organizations and people are now using 
AI that only NASA could have used, uh, say, five years ago, right? It is advancing that quickly. So, you know, one of our concerns is organizations will just be grabbing software off the shelf that has AI and it's called smart and who doesn't want to be smart and who doesn't want to use the latest stuff and you just grab it and put it into place. I think what's going to happen is for the organizations that are either using smart tech badly or refusing to engage in the conversation, they're going to double and triple down on that last era of frantic busyness and efficiency. And I think there's going to be a really stark difference that when you have a choice as a donor, as a volunteer, as a client, I hope, to choose an organization, one that knows your name, one that wants to take the time to ask you your story, and one that just wants to get you in and out as quickly as possible, we know which organization people are going to prefer, right? As a donor, are you going to want the organization that spits out a computerized thank you note as quickly as possible to you? Or are you going to want an organization that wants to pick up the phone and ask you, Rob, tell me why this cause means so much to you. Tell me your story, right? That stark difference that I think we'll begin to see in a couple of years of which organization uh, wants to be relational and knows how to use the technology well to do that. Oh, well said, Allison. Beth, what would you add to that? Oh my God, that was such a perfect response. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to go back to the frantic busyness because you know, Rob, uh, we had a conversation about the happy, healthy nonprofit, and you know, I did the I think keynote Utah on that topic. That's and, correct. You did a great job. We loved having you. You know, and the pandemic has really accelerated our you know burnout and this frantic busyness and the stress, and you know that that's just not sustainable. You know, and so I think we're not going to go back to normal. We need to go back to rethinking the way we do the work. And this technology, I think, is a critical component of that to actually merge my two favorite topics, digital transformation and workplace well-being. I mean, that's, I think, the future. And AI is an automation technologies are an important piece of that. Oh, well said. And okay, so with that theme then, on the positive side, you argue again that organizations who do become smart nonprofits do have this opportunity to turn the page on an era of frantic business, as you've mentioned, and that idea of scarcity to one which organizations have the time to think and plan and even dream. And as you said, Allison, really well, just to talk to people, have the time and the bandwidth to say, tell me your story. I have time because all these other things are, you've created so many efficiencies in your organization. Now you have more time for people and more time with donors. So what are some of the next most important steps they should take now to become this kind of nonprofit that really is a quote, smart nonprofit? <laughs> I want to jokingly say- Beth, you well, can start, should, yeah. They should read the book. <laughs> well, I mean, there you go, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, or, well, or, they got to wait a couple educated. months for that. You know, have a, a conversation about it with, with staff, introduce it, look at some of the examples out there, have some of the what if conversations. This is not an immediate jump into the deep end of the pool kind of process, but maybe it's a conversation about how could we better serve our clients or how could we reduce the frantic busyness with staff? How could automation help get at that problem? And really sitting with that problem and thinking about it from the end user's needs and perspective, I think is an important first step. Love it. Yes. Thank you. Allison, what would you add to that? I would really encourage organizational leaders not to take the easy way out. And I think for a lot of them, the easy way out is to say, bringing in more technology into our organization 
is going to make us less human centric. So we don't need to do this. We're we're human services organization. And that's easy, right? And there's a, a fantastic paper, I think it was out of MIT, that said for the last 60 years, people have been saying every year, in 20 years, robots will take over the world, you know, the next 20 years and the next 20 years. And it's been 20 years forever. That's not the immediate future. The immediate future is learning how to use this incredibly powerful technology to do what we do best, which is to serve people, um, which is to bring meaning to life, to bring meaning to clients and volunteers. And there is this opportunity right here to be able to be so fundamentally different and better, we think. And so I think it would be an awful shame for organizations to say either we're too busy to do that right now, or, you know, I'm not a techie, so I can't get it. And we really do hope that they'll lean in and learn about this because they can get this. This is not beyond any of the folks that we've spoken to in the last three years of doing research on this. So maybe to have one final question about this, as people will be maybe doing their New Year's resolutions here very soon, what would be one of the most important New Year's resolutions for nonprofit organizations, you know, besides getting your book, that would be most important. But after that, what would be the most important New Year's resolutions that you feel like nonprofit organizations should do in response to all that we've been talking about today? Um, mm, that's, a, that's a good one. Let me think about that. I think, uh, have, the, have that first conversation about it. Uh, you know, maybe have a small, uh, a set, you know, I'm thinking about a baby step. What's a baby step? All right. That's easy because we know if you're setting a resolution or a new habit, you got to start small and something that, uh, and add it on to something that's already existing. So we all have staff meetings, right? So add it on to maybe an agenda item, thinking about and ask a question about maybe introducing the, the, you know, the concept of automation and getting staff even to talk about like, you know, how it could help them reduce that franticness and stress and thinking about what the benefit is. So in addition to buying and reading the book, of course, <laughs> of course, <laughs> I had a first career as a program evaluator, Rob. And what was an ongoing challenge was the unwillingness of organizations to ask their stakeholders how they make them feel. Not what we do, right? Not just the churn every day, but do we see you as a person? Do we value your contributions? Do we make you feel good? I, I'm, and it's not a totally light lift, but I would love to challenge organizations to take a core group of key stakeholders, have somebody from the outside, ask them honestly, tell us how we make you feel, and to have them sit with those responses for a while and to start to connect the dots between why. They do the things internally for efficiency and how it makes people feel. And I guarantee you that 99% of them will find a disconnect. And to just sit with that, sit with that at a board meeting, sit with that at a staff meeting and try to wrestle with how can we undo some of those bad habits we've developed? Well, that is one of the best questions I have had anybody, one of my guests share just to pass on to your donors or to your community, how do we as an organization make you feel? I love that question. 
And then you, your recommendation, just sit in that. Just receive it and think about it. Let it soak in. Yeah, don't try to defend or try to give reasons of why you caused that to happen. Well, well said. I really like that. That's powerful. What else, Alice? Rob, I've been asking that question for a really long time. <laughs> I've yet to have anybody take me up on it. So Is that right? Okay. <laughs> so good luck asking it, but or getting a response. All right. That is fun. I love the question though. I think it's a great question. And we don't normally think about that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, this is great. And it's so exciting. I think my listeners are going to want to definitely get your book. It's coming out. So tell us again exactly when it's coming out. How can they find out more about the book and more about the two of you? March 9th is the official release date, but it's available on Amazon for pre-order. And uh, you can find out more about me and the book at www.bethcantor.org. And I'm at alisonfine.com. We've been writing about this topic for a couple of years. So you're welcome to Google that, but I hope people will pre-order the book. And then um, we look forward to having a chance to talk to folks about it. Well, again, the two of you are a dynamic duo. You provide so much great research. And that's what I think I love about it is you, you're both, I could tell you're constant consumant learners. And so you pass it on to us through your books. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for being on the show today and giving your insights. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Hey friends, well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.